0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Another state, another Republican says it's time to do what the federal government won't do. California Governor Schwarzenegger calls for massive cuts in greenhouse gases to offset global warming.
1: I say the debate is over. We know the science, we see the
0: threat, and we know the time for action is now. To ward off climate change, the race is on for energy that does not produce greenhouse gases, and that has the environmental movement taking a second look at an old foe,
2: nuclear power. If we believe that global warming is very serious, the overriding environmental issue of our day, then I think we have to have an open mind about nuclear power, and we should not just throw it off the table from the get-go.
0: Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the steps of City Hall in San Francisco, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As of today, California is going to be the leader in the fight against global warming. On June 1st, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger came to a gathering of mayors and environmental officials at the United Nations World Environment Day to make a very public break with the Bush administration over climate change. Taking pen in hand to sign an executive order, he set California on a path to catch up with and then pass the benchmark set to reduce global warming gases under the International Kyoto Protocol.
1: By the year 2010, Our goal is to reduce our emissions to less than those we produced in the year 2000. And by 2020, the goal will be to take our emissions lower than the 1990 levels. And by 2050, our goal is to reduce our overall emissions a full 80 percent below those we produced in 1990.
0: Scientists say such deep cuts are needed to keep the effects of climate disruption at bay. The Schwarzenegger order only affects activities of state agencies and needs legislative approval to impose it on the broader California public. Still, as leader of one of the world's largest economies, Schwarzenegger's move amounts to a direct challenge to the White House, which opposes mandatory caps on carbon emissions.
1: I say the debate is over. We know the science. we see the threat, and we know the time for action is now.
0: Governor Schwarzenegger says he will stoutly defend the California law setting greenhouse gas limits for cars that's being challenged by the auto industry and promote conservation and the production of carbon-free energy. To do less, he says, would amount to the betrayal of future generations.
1: In decades past, when we brought this damage to the world around us, we did not know any better. That was our mistake. But now we do know better. And if we don't do anything about it, that will be our
0: injustice. Joining me to talk about the governor's plan is Stanford University climatologist Stephen Snyder, who's also an advisor to Governor Schwarzenegger about global warming. Uh, Professor Snyder, what's the significance of this announcement by Governor Schwarzenegger?
2: What we've done is we've set a bipartisan example that, in my view, is dramatically important. It's a lesson I wish they'd learn inside the Beltway because the environment and conservation is a conservative issue. It should not be ideologically polarized into blue and red states. So this may be more important from the fact that a significant Republican did it than actually what he announced.
0: What's the mechanism of enforcement? I mean, it's fine for a governor to say, California should do this. What
2: powers does he have to make it happen? Yeah, Steve, you've got your finger right on the problem. Uh, You've got to have some rules, and the rules have to have teeth, and that's going to take political buy-in. And this announcement from the governor today is part of the process of getting the public to buy into the need for real rules with enforcement, but we're not there yet. So this is important to get us going. But the next thing to do, Steve, we've got to do it, or this really is just talk, is we have to have the California legislature pass rules for efficiency of efficiency of cars, which is already done. Uh, we have to defend them in court and not lose to the auto industry. It's not clear about that. We have to then set up a cap and trade program where we have limits on emissions and we allow the, the polluters that can't make it to buy from those people who are more efficient than, than their requirements and they actually get a reward for having invented clean mechanisms. And all those kinds of rules will now have to be implemented. I actually think there's a decent chance they'll get implemented in California. Then other states, New York, York, Massachusetts, and other states in the Northeast and Oregon and Washington have all said, well, if California does it, we're going to do it. So pretty soon we start surrounding the federal recalcitrants, the ones that are hanging back and refusing to do anything, and we'll have to get those guys to finally do the right thing, which is to set it up at the level we have to set it up, which is nationally.
0: Um, how does Governor Schwarzenegger's plan uh, compare to the Kyoto process?
2: It's stronger in the long run and weaker in the short run. Kyoto said that we needed to cut in the United States to 7% approximately below our 1990 levels of emiss- emissions. But we've been going way up. We're like 15 18% higher now than we were in, uh, in 1990. And the California cut that he talked about was to the year 2000. So it's still different. The the California target that the governor is talking about is still about an 8% increase to 2010. But without it, we would have been a 20 or 22% increase. So it's a big change.
0: Now, one of the mechanisms that California is looking to is to use the cap-and-trade system to meet this very ambitious goal of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. That would mean California, as a state, will be trading with other countries.
2: We have to figure that out. First of all, we could certainly trade with other states. And there are other states, particularly in the Northeast, which if California does this, are going to do it too. California's always been in that kind of a leadership role. And other states want to get on the act and therefore we're going to take action. But if we can get beyond the U.S. and be able to do trades in other countries, I don't see any absolute legal impediment to it, but it could be some interesting court tests. Uh, we should do it at the federal level, but when the feds won't do it, the states have to take up the slack. I'll give you an example. Back in the 70s, in the energy crises, California passed a rule, fought and screamed about by the electric appliance industry, requiring more than a factor of two improvement in the efficiency of refrigerators. They said it would be too expensive and everybody's refrigerator would be too small. None of that happened. In fact, the feds adopted those rules a few years later and the amount of electricity that's saved is so amazing that despite the vice president telling us that energy efficiency is a moral virtue and doesn't do anything really and you need supply like Anwar, we have already saved just from refrigerators alone from the initial California rules that went national to ANWRs in energy. So There's a lot we can do.
0: Professor Stephen Schneider is a climatologist at Stanford University and an advisor to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger on climate change. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Steve. So far, the federal government has rejected mandatory limits on the emissions of greenhouse gases, but two prominent senators are trying to change that. Republican John McCain of Arizona and Democrat Joe Lieberman of Connecticut want their colleagues to take another look at a modest cap on carbon emissions. Their Climate Stewardship Act gained a respectable 43 votes the last time the Senate considered it. This time around, Senators McCain and Lieberman hoped to pick up votes by adding subsidies for climate-friendly energy technology, including nuclear power. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports that addition has sharply divided advocates for limits on global warming gases.
4: Two years ago, the Climate Stewardship Act drew enthusiastic support from environmentalists. The bill called for the nation's first cap on greenhouse gases from power plants and an emissions trading system to let the market soften the economic blow. This year, the bill is back. The support is not. That's because its new version would put hundreds of millions of dollars toward the design and development of three new nuclear power reactors, along with other technologies like solar and low-emission coal plants. The act's primary sponsor, Senator John McCain, never made a secret of his support for nuclear energy. Here's what he told Living on Earth in September.
2: I feel very strongly about nuclear power, and you can't
4: be serious. You can't be serious about reducing the effect of greenhouse gas emissions unless you have factor in nuclear
2: power into the equation.
4: It's been three decades since a nuclear reactor went online in the U.S. due to concerns about cost, safety and radioactive waste and opposition from environmental groups. McCain hopes to encourage a new generation of safer, more affordable nuclear reactors. He says it's the only power source that could meet growing energy demand without pumping more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, making dangerous changes in climate more likely. Greenpeace energy specialist John Cookett shares McCain's sense of urgency about climate change, but not his views on nuclear power.
2: It's a difficult choice in that we really believe the time to act is now. But that being said, we cannot support a bill that offers major subsidies to the nuclear power industry. Greenpeace is founded on the notion that nuclear power is not the answer. So for us to backtrack from that is just not tenable at this point.
4: Opposition to nuclear energy is in the DNA of groups like Greenpeace, which grew up in the wake of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island in the late 70s. Greenpeace, the Natural Resources Defense Council, Sierra Club, most of the major environmental groups active in Washington are now backing away from McCain's bill. They urge a global warming strategy based on conservation and renewable energy. Anna Aurelio with the U.S. Public Interest Research Group says her group commissioned a study showing how alternatives like wind, solar and biomass could achieve the CO2 cuts McCain wants without the risks associated with nuclear power.
3: I don't really understand um, how you can be a real environmentalist and think that somehow you need to accept this very, very dangerous energy source to deal with a problem that's caused by another dangerous energy source. That's an unacceptable and unnecessary trade-off, and we don't need to be making it.
4: James Lovelock considers himself a real environmentalist. The British scientists drew early attention to ozone-depleting chemicals and climate change and developed the Gaia hypothesis, the influential idea of the Earth as a self-regulating superorganism. And through it all, Lovelock has urged other environmentalists to rethink nuclear power.
0: If they're right about the dangers, and I don't think they are, I think they've exaggerated them for their own purposes. But even if they were right, it's nowhere near as dangerous as going on doing what we're doing.
4: When McCain's new bill linked nuclear power and climate change, he brought to a boil a debate that's long simmered in the environmental community a few influential voices like Whole Earth Catalog founder Stuart Brand and early Greenpeace organizer Patrick Moore are breaking ranks and arguing that the risks of climate change now trump fears of another Chernobyl. Like Dr. Lovelock, they've learned to stop worrying and love the nukes. Somewhere in between is the group Environmental Defense, whose president Fred Krupp still worries about radioactive waste and reactor safety, but also still supports McCain's climate bill.
2: If we believe that global warming is very serious, the overriding environmental issue of our day, then I think we have to have an open mind and um, certainly ask the serious, tough questions about nuclear power that um, need to be asked. And we should not just throw it off the table from the get-go.
4: McCain will likely try to make his climate measure an amendment to the massive energy bill heading for the Senate floor in the coming weeks. With or without the nuclear subsidies, it's a tough fight. Industry condemns the Climate Act as too costly, and President Bush opposes any cap on carbon emissions. But McCain might get some help from one of the president's friends. British Prime Minister Tony Blair says he will push the U.S. on climate change during his upcoming visit with Bush. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
0: Coming up, World Environment Day comes to San Francisco. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood in San Francisco. Musicians from Iraq's National Symphony play traditional folk music to open the festivities at World Environment Day. Some 70 mayors from all over the world are in the Golden Gate City for the United Nations event, This is the first time the annual conference is being held in the United States since the celebration began in 1974. This year's theme is greening cities, and San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom is well aware of why his town became the chosen venue.
2: Now, we'd like to think the United Nations chose San Francisco because of our great environmental stewardship, because of our example, and because we have so much to share. But we would be, I think, overstating it. Do not forget... Where you are sitting here today is exactly where people were some 60 years ago next month. Those were the people that put together the documents to found the United Nations.
0: World Environment Day is really a multi-day-long event, with San Francisco touting its delicious food and wonderful scenery, along with highlighting its environmental achievements with exhibits, panels, and tours. Among the innovations on display, next-generation solar panel arrays vehicles powered by hydrogen fuel cells and an unusual structure dubbed the Scrap House. This model home, erected amid the Beaux-Arts splendor of the San Francisco Civic Center, was constructed entirely of reclaimed and recycled materials that might otherwise be taking up space in a landfill. Designed and built in just over a month by more than 80 volunteers, the home serves as a steel, wood, and glass example of how items usually discarded as junk can have a new lease on life. Lawrence Cornfield, the city's chief building inspector, took us on a tour of the scrap house.
5: So let me show you. Come on in and take a look inside. Although, real, watch your step here. This is a real trip hazard. Heads up here. Heads up. We have a large crew of scrap scrap mongers, uh-huh. scrap salvagers out around the city now. Some of them are here volunteering, but, you know, we're out scavenging, and we did a bus tour in that big old green tortoise bus that, over there uh, around the city with the design team, and, and one of the first weeks that we were working on this, and we went to all the scrap yards and all the junk yards just to get a feel for what was in this waste stream, and it was phenomenal, the stuff we saw. Yeah, I would, I would check out, and you know, I don't know that much- this is extra glazing from the construction uh, process, which ordinarily would just go into a debris box to the landfill. The siding is the stuff that looks like it came out of your, my grandfather's uh, smoking lounge in the basement of his house in Philadelphia you know, in the, in the 50s, and it was in the back of some warehouse. So it's all entirely reclaimed scrap material. The structure is metal studs, which came out of uh, old uh tenant improvement and other construction jobs in san francisco it's all patched together but you know structurally it works if it's put together right they're bringing in the leather for the floor it's going to be a leather leather floor floor in the bedroom i understand and uh yeah it's just it's amazing the table will have a large table in the living room which an artist is making out of cardboard, recycled wow. cardboard, which apparently is is what his medium is. Wonderful. It's more than just a one-shot deal. You know, we have to take this and somehow translate it into our daily practices both at the city and in the construction industry. Thanks you guys. Thanks Gene. Yeah. Thanks Josh. The real lesson
6: is, whether you're building a treehouse or an addition or a garage, or you can go and find cool
0: found objects.
2: It's a house made from, uh,
0: Those last comments come from Jared Blumenfeld. He directs the San Francisco Department of the Environment and is one of the lead organizers of World Environment Day. We caught up with Mr. Blumenfeld outside City Hall to discuss the aim of the event and how San Francisco hopes to set an example as a city committed to a green urban environment. So, Jared Blumenfeld, you're hosting mayors from all over the world for World Environment Day with a focus on urban environmental concerns. What do you want them to know about San Francisco?
6: What we want them to know about San Francisco is that We're committed to a path of sustainability, but we don't have all the answers. So part of of why we want them to come to San Francisco is to learn about the cool things that we're doing from recycling to green building to solar power. But really why we're bringing them here is, is in the spirit of the UN that was created here 60 years ago where we had 50 founding delegates. We want people to come here and really share their ideas and vision for how
0: we can create urban centers that are sustainable. Uh, maybe a little puckish to ask this but if you bring all these people together that has a big environmental impact uh-huh. what if anything are you doing to offset the environmental impact of all these folks coming together actually one of our
6: donors Swinnerton has uh, bought greenhouse gra- gas credits for us so hopefully we'll end up being climate neutral um, from a climate perspective but you know obviously all, all these conferences we tried to keep it small so I was very involved in the Rio Earth Summit where they had you know, tens of thousands of people. We wanted just the key mayors and a few of their staff to come together. We want to try and keep the ecological footprint of World Environment Day as minimal as possible. All the meals will be organic all the meals and events will be zero waste, so no, nothing will be going to landfill, and all the transportation will be in alternative fuel vehicles, and, and some of them in things like a $4 million hydrogen fuel cell vehicle that another transit agency is lending us. So we're really trying to make the event a statement in and of itself. What do you mean small, and, and, and how did you pick the mayors? Basically, we wanted to invite the largest cities on the planet. So we worked with the UN to pick the largest hundred cities on the planet. And that was our first cut. The next cut was cities like Curitiba that are doing amazing environmental things that we thought we could really learn from. But the the, the hundred that you know we started with were cities that are just large, that have huge conglomerations of people. Some, some of them in China are up to 32 million people. They're like nation states. And we said, you know, it's great to have small little towns like Brattleboro, Vermont, that are doing interesting environmental things but we need to get the big guys involved otherwise we're not going to save the planet.
0: So uh, how the heck do you
6: design a World Environment Day? How we started off was to look at what others had done but there was no consistency and kind of like Earth Day in the U.S. it had lost its buzz. People had kind of gone flat. People celebrated it and it was a big thing, but nothing really ever happened from one year to the next. So the first thing that we wanted to make sure was that it was relevant and had some legacy that went beyond the conference itself. Um, The second thing is that we wanted to identify a political audience that could be catalysts for change, agents for change that were not traditional, that were grassroots, that could be held accountable. And as we found out more and more about the demographic shifts on the planet towards cities and the
0: fact that more people now live in cities, we were like, wow, we should invite mayors. So you wanted this gathering to have some sort of impact after it happens. How are you going to do that?
6: So the way we're going to have impact after it happens, after World Environment Day happens, is is through a document that we've developed called the San Francisco Urban Environmental Accords. And it's basically 21 simple actions that each city can take. And we want them to take them within a seven-year period. And we said, we don't want it to be open-ended. We don't want it to last forever. We want them to do something now, Um, simple things that they can do. And so we developed this checklist. um, And what we're hoping is that mayors come together here and work together. And and rather than have a big plenary session, we're having sessions that are done in what's called World Café style. So we'll have four mayors sitting together, um, and we'll have you know, probably 200 people in the room. So there'll be lots of different little tables, and they'll all be talking about a common issue. How do you deal with recycling? What are the policies that you've adopted? What are the financial incentives? How do you work with business to make it happen? Um, and so that they'll start building networks. How did you pick the 21 points? We worked very closely with the uh, University of California at Berkeley and with an environmental group called the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives to come up with a set of concrete actions that had been taken by at least one city. So each of the 21 actions in the Urban Environmental Accords that the mayors will sign have been taken by one city. We didn't want to invent things that no one had done before. We started with energy, uh, then we went to transportation, urban planning, urban nature, things like trees and parks, um, water, and
0: the things that every city has to deal with. Jared Blumenfeld, as director of the San Francisco Department of the Environment, thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Absolutely, Steve. It's been a pleasure.
7: This is actually one of the oldest sections of Bayview Hunters Point, right here. This is Evans. The next major street is Third. At the opposite end would be uh, Caesar Chavez. And what's important about this main run is that this used to be the very main run for heavy trucks, a lot of diesels.
0: A block at a time, Marie Harrison points out the industries that line the streets of Bayview-Hunters Point in southeast San Francisco. A mother and a grandmother, and now a community organizer, Ms. Harrison grew up in this neighborhood of African Americans, Pacific Islanders, and the four single largest sources of air pollution in San Francisco.
7: In Bayview-Hunters Point, one of the biggest problems we have is that we have contaminated soil. We have water that has more pollution in it, more garbage in it, than anybody should allow anywhere. We have air that it, you can cut with a knife because, in certain times of the year, there's so much junk in our air. Tis ridiculous.
0: On one block, there's a metal rendering factory. Down the street, a company that makes the coating for baking pans. A whiff of the air hints of what's to come.
7: At this corner starts this uh, southeast sewage treatment plant. This plant goes down to the end of the block. It goes in one, two, almost three normal blocks in, and three blocks down. It backs up to the Southeast Community College as you go down Phelps Street. It's a very large place.
0: With some very large neighbors, including a naval shipyard that's a Superfund site and two coal-fired power plants. Marie Harrison used to live in a housing project across the street from Hunter's Point Power Plant where residents, including members of her own family, suffered health problems ranging from asthma to cancer.
7: My son was constantly breaking out with some kind of rash in the bend of his legs and around his neck. My baby daughter would break out with a rash all over the, the muscle tissue of her leg, and she would scratch and scratch and scratch and scratch it.
0: Their doctor said the kids would grow out of it, but her daughter, who's 32 now, still suffers from skin rashes. Health department officials told residents, especially African Americans, that they should exercise more and watch their diets. Over time, folks like Marie Harrison began to think the problem was not due to their lifestyle or their race.
7: We began to notice that the people who moved in and people who were here, and not necessarily African-American folks, but people who would move into our community, I guess anywhere between five to ten years, they started having children here. Their children were either born with asthma or some type of heart disease or some type of a bronchial something going on, you know, there was always something.
0: A neighboring family who watered their vegetable garden from well water later found out the water contained arsenic, and the companies responsible didn't tell residents about it. Over the years, Ms. Harrison says that whole family developed one form of cancer or another. But one event involving her grandson, Roman, changed Marie Harrison's life forever.
7: They lived right across the street from the power plant, and his bedroom window this is the highest point of the of the stoke for the power plant. He always had to keep it cracked. But every morning he would wake up with blood all over his pillow.
0: Then one day the nosebleed turned into an emergency.
7: Oh God. When Roman was almost he wasn't quite five, my daughter called me in a panic. The ambulance hadn't got there. Roman, first I said, well, did you clean the blood from Ronald's nose? Yes, yes, but he can't breathe. He was really tiny. He was screaming. I could hear him crying. By the time i got gotten here, the ambulance had gotten here, and they were trying to put, uh, make him comfortable.
0: The doctor at the hospital was reluctant to put Roman in an oxygen tent, Marie Harrison believes, because it's expensive and the family was on Medicare. When she pressed the doctor for solutions to her grandson's health problems, he said bluntly, move him out of the neighborhood. And that's just what Marie Harrison did, but not before making a promise to herself.
7: I, at somewhere in that time, I made up my mind that not only was Roma not going to have to go through this, but nobody's child.
0: Now Marie Harrison is a community organizer for Green Action for Health and Environmental Justice in the Bay Area. She organizes rallies, phone calling and letter-writing campaigns, toxic tours for the public, and she goes into classrooms to educate children. Her main goal is to shut down the polluting power plant, but that's just a start.
7: We know for a fact that this plant plays a big part of the picture, but we know that it's not the only source of our ills and our, our, our ills and, should I say, our misdeeds. And we do. any person here will tell you this power plant has got to go. We understand what it's doing to us, but we know that it's not the only thing here. We understand that there is more than one Goliath here. We can only take on one at a time.
0: For years now, public officials have promised to shut down the plant, only to renege as the deadline approaches. The present mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, pledges to shut Hunter's Point down in two years. Marie Harrison says she'll believe it when she sees it. Opponents say shutting down the power plant will cost the city too much money. But Ms. Harrison says the city pays either way.
7: It should not, and would not, cannot, and we won't allow it to be whichever is the cheapest because a lot of times when you think about the bottom line, the, the technology that they use depend on how little it's going to cost. Well, if you add up the medical bills for one person who goes into the emergency room how many times a year, the medicines, how many times a year they have to have it refilled, over, and how many times do these visits they have to call an ambulance to take them to the emergency room, When you start adding all those costs up for one person, times how many folks live in our community, times how many folks live in the city, wouldn't it be cheaper to say, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this?
0: Marie Harrison is an organizer for the Environmental Advocacy Group Green Action for Health and Environmental Justice in San Francisco and a former resident of Bayview-Hunters Point. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today.
7: Sure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming.
0: Just ahead, new hope for sustainable community redevelopment. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu.
8: There's a new culprit on the list of eco-unfriendly enterprises. The music industry, which some folks blame for noise pollution, is now being criticized for its greenhouse gas emissions. Taking most of the heat is British pop band Radiohead, whose lead singer Tom York recently joined a Friends of the Earth campaign to reduce carbon dioxide emissions in the United Kingdom. But the Sunday Times in London, with the help of the Edinburgh Centre for Carbon Management, checked up on just how environmentally friendly York's band is. They analyzed the band's latest tour and found that 500,000 fans that traveled to these concerts generated more than 5,000 tons of carbon dioxide. In addition, radio had racked up an estimated 50,000 air miles during the tour, producing 54 tons of CO2. And finally, 2,000 tons of carbon dioxide were produced in making the CD Hail to the Thief. In all, Radiohead's tour contributed an estimated 7,500 tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. That's what 1,400 cars produce in a year. Bands including the Rolling Stones, Coldplay, and Pink Floyd have attempted to offset their carbon pollution by planting trees, which absorb carbon dioxide. For Radiohead to follow suit, the band would have to plant 50,000 trees and maintain them for 100 years to offset the pollution from their latest tour. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth.
3: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Verizon, providing 411 directory assistance for residential and business numbers locally or across the country. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's no coincidence that the landscape of Oakland, California resembles something out of a Star Wars movie. George Lucas modeled his stormtrooper carriers after the huge white cranes that sit along the city's port, methodically raising cargo from incoming freighters to waiting rail cars. These cranes are a symbol of just how much industry is a part of the city and, for that matter, how much commerce is part of the nation. But people like Van Jones believe part of Oakland's community pays more than its fair share of the price. On any given day, Van Jones says, factories and trucks spew fumes into the air that have created some of the highest asthma rates in the country, as well as other illnesses. A lawyer by training, Mr. Jones is executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. And he says by cleaning up the city, he can help people breathe easier, live safer, and get better jobs. I met up with Van Jones at an abandoned city lot on a busy intersection in industrial West Oakland.
9: West Oakland is a community where 80 percent of the folks who live here live within an eighth of a mile of an industrial site. Um, It's literally a a stone's throw. So it's very uh, unhealthy. Uh, It's an asthma epidemic. Uh, You go to the public uh, schools, you know, you see little second and third graders. More than half of them have an inhaler in their pocket. Um, I mean, it's really uh, an epidemic here. And so the struggle in West Oakland, not just for jobs and economic development, but for economic development that won't make things worse, mm-hmm. that's the whole game. That's what it's all about. Who lives here? Um, black folks <laughs> live in West <laughs> Oakland. You know, West Oakland is uh, uh, a traditionally African American, uh, low income, working class community. Um, more and more uh, different kinds of people uh, uh, you know, live here, but you know, it's still, West Oakland is still considered an African American community. And um, it used to be a brilliant, beautiful, thriving, amazing place. And then over time, like so many uh, urban communities, it, be- it fell on hard times. And it fell prey to, you know, polluters, uh, toxifiers. Um, and one of the worst um, was the Red Star Yeast Factory. Which, uh-huh. if you see this, this big empty lot here, yeah. uh, this used to be uh, uh, one of the, the nastiest smelling Uh, industrial sites anywhere in Northern California. I mean, uh, because they were making yeast, the uh, kinds of smells that would be uh, coming out all hours a day, the noise, um, was just horrendous. And and for a while, people had just accepted it. Um, But then a local community organization... um, did some research and found out that it wasn't just that it was bad smells, but it was carcinogenic, and that explained uh, a lot of the health issues around here. And so there was a community mobilization to shut this place down, and you can see we won.
0: At this Red Star yeast plant, what what came out that
9: was so so toxic? Well, uh, carbon monoxide was coming out, Uh, sulfur dioxide was coming out, uh, something called aldehyde. I mean, there were chemicals coming out that community people couldn't even pronounce. And the only thing that we knew was that uh, our children were being hospitalized for asthma at seven times the rate of any place else in California.
0: And so uh, we knew something had to be done. So um, what happened here to shut down this plant? One day it's here, the next day it's gone. It took some kind of work. What was it?
9: Well, you know, we're lucky because in West Oakland and really all across America, we have environmental heroes and sheroes who, who, who are willing to stand up. Uh, the Pacific Institute, uh, who you know, have um, PhDs and scientists and stuff on staff, uh, you know, they did an environmental indicators project and discovered all these poisons that were coming out into the community. And then we have heroes like, um, you know, Margaret Gordon, uh, who's an African-American grandmother who, you know, won't take it, you know, and she uh, and others like me, you Amanza know, Toto. Uh, stood up and, and stood up to the powers that be.
0: What did they do? Did they march? Did they picket? Did they protest? Did they sit in? Did they write letters? What did they do? Yes, <laughs> they, they did it all. Uh, they did everything from, you know, writing
9: letters, uh, having sit-down meetings, uh, they, but they mainly what they did was uh, they did some civil disobedience uh, to say, listen, you can't bring these trucks in and out of here anymore, um, and they went to the Air uh, Quality Management District that had been asleep at the wheel for decades, letting this poison go, and they brought the facts and the figures and they got this thing shut down, and by them shutting this one factory down they opened up the possibility for West Oakland to become a
0: community that everybody can be proud of. These days environmental activists and civil disobedience, those two Phrases don't go together that often. Why do you suppose that is? You know, I just think that we've forgotten our history. I mean, I I think that um, the...
9: People want the civil rights movement to either just be Dr. King giving the speech or they just wanted to be the Black Panthers, you know, raising the fist. And the reality is that you had people of all colors coming together across the country uh, who had a different vision for America, wanted America to lead the world in human rights, um, and were ashamed of the, the, the failures of this country to live up to its best promises, and they changed the country, absolutely changed the country. Um, Similarly now, across the country, you have people who are very concerned about America leading the world in pollution, in, in consumption, in waste, uh, driving the, the global warming crisis to a peak point. And those people are not uh, just white affluent people who live in the suburbs. People of color read the newspaper too. And we want to see a, a change happen that will not only benefit the global uh, uh, situation, but also can make our community stronger. And that's what this new urban environmentalism allows for. Feels, I got to tell you, it feels good to be walking on on uh, what used to be, you know, I mean, this place was killing people. So now has the asthma rate improved here? Um, the asthma rate um, has improved marginally. The other problem that we have is uh, that we got the biggest stationary source removed, but then look over here. When you're standing in West Oakland, the port is right over there. Products come here from all around the world. Big diesel trucks come and idle in our community— to take those products to the suburbs, to the affluent areas. But we bear the burden in our lungs of those trucks sitting there to take something out to the, uh, to the malls uh, all over the country. Um, why can't those trucks use biodiesel? Why can't those trucks use clean energy? Uh, so that um, as this commerce is happening and benefiting people over uh, abroad and throughout America, we're not suffering. That's jobs, um, skilled jobs, what we call green-collar jobs. Green-collar jobs. That's what we want. We want we, we The blue-collar jobs are the jobs of the, of the past for the manufacturing that's leaving. Uh, white-collar jobs are jobs that you know, people aspire to, but often it's narrow at the top. But there, you look around here, there's no amount of... Uh, you could have 100 a, a people here right now working uh, to improve the way this place looks and feels. Uh, they would be working here 10 years from now because there's so much urban renewal... I don't use that word. There's so much urban restoration
0: that is required now, um, as more people come into the cities and come into urban areas. Okay, here we are. San Francisco Bay has 200 plus mayors from around the world here gathering for World Environment Day. Yeah. They come from anywhere from uh, Kabul and Afghanistan to, to Shanghai and China to Curitiba uh, and Brazil, London, England. What's the message from, from Oakland, California, from you, Van Jones, to yeah. these mayors?
9: Well, well uh, the message is that in, that environmentalism is not an elite issue. It's not an issue that's just for the affluent people to be concerned about, that the environmental uh, burden of community health and, and sickness and death falls on, in the slums. It falls on the poor. What we want to say is that every single mayor who's here has a slum in their community. They have a low-income area. They have a ghetto. They have a barrio. In every slum, put a green job training center so that people can come in and learn how to do rainwater reclamation, permaculture, uh, uh, how to uh, put solar cells up, help people who have economic needs and community health needs meet those needs through a new environmentalism that's about uh, social uplift as well as saving the planet. That's what we're saying. You know, one of the pe- one of the reasons that we do what we do in holding out a different vision is Dr. King didn't get famous with a speech called "I Have a Complaint." You know? <laughs> <laughs> he had a dream. We have a dream in West Oakland. You
0: know? So, uh, if you were going to give this speech today, this is 2005 and not 1963. Mm-hmm. What would you say? "I Have a Dream." Dot. 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 Well, you know. I dream of seeing these
9: young uh, sisters and brothers out here in the community moving from jail cells to solar cells, you know what I mean? That I, I, I imagine a situation where places like Oakland, Watts, uh, Newark, Detroit, these places could be Silicon Valleys of green capital. These places could be uh, the, the models, uh, you know, model cities really that show that you can't have zero pollution, zero poverty, and zero displacement of the people who live here if you just invest in giving them skills to have green-collar jobs. I believe that green-collar jobs to put urban America back to work and to restore urban America is is the silver bullet solution for the environmental and social problems we're facing here in West Oakland and across the country.
0: Van Jones is executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in Oakland, California. Thanks for taking this time today. Well, thank you. You know, Come back. We're going to be a world leader for the green economy. Come back
9: and do, and do that show, too.
0: Changing attitudes can take a long time. Right in the same city as Van Jones, there's a school that's developed a successful recycling program. you think it would be litter-free. But that's not the case at Oakland High School, where each month enough garbage is generated to fill a classroom to the ceiling. The school's Environmental Science Academy is in its seventh year, but only 10% or so of the school's student body takes part in the recycling efforts. As Youth Radio's Ricky Zhang explains, the enthusiasm of academy members for cleaning up the campus is taking its time to rub off on their classmates.
10: Walk through a stairwell after lunch at my school, and you'll be tripping over chip bags and soda cans, and wading through a garden of sunflower seeds freshly watered with saliva. Fusima Latu says she wishes kids would think more about what they're doing.
3: Kids think it's not cool to throw your trash away, but, you know, like, it would be like, would you go to your house and just live in a pile of trash?
10: Obviously, some kids do care about how our school looks. Oakland High has a serious recycling program. It's part of our Environmental Science Academy, or ESA, a special academic program for kids into science and nature. Kevin Jordan is a science teacher who helped
6: found ESA. Basically, in Oakland, we have a culture of trash, and our kids grow up oftentimes uh, maybe in households where recycling is not going on and seeing trash on the street. Our neighborhoods are in trouble. So when we're trying to get them to recycle here, oftentimes we're really starting from zero.
10: Oh my God, did Mr. Jordan just say we have a culture of trash in Oakland? I should be appalled by that. But honestly, I'm not. Mr. Jordan has a point.
6: You know, here I am getting these kids to do this task that is uh, not real desirable. And one of them was carrying a a recycling bin and um, took a punch while they were carrying the recycling bin out to the recycling place outside. Um, So at that point, we have to really look at are our hallways safe enough to, to carry out this task
10: Apparently not, because Mr. Jordan says he shut down the recycling program for about a month after the punching incident. That made life even harder for Oakland High's two daytime custodians, who handle garbage generated by over 2,000 students. What does custodian Sylvester Lawson see?
6: You know, I see a lot of trash that I throw away that should be recycled. But, you know, my job is to throw away trash. If it's in the can, I, I got to throw it away. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to separate it. <laughs> you know,
9: I mean, but I see a lot of waste.
10: Well, I see a lot of waste, too. And there's the trash can. There's a trail of ants all over it. Look at all these ants. That's just disgusting. <laughs> Marisa Ochoa thinks she knows why recycling hasn't rubbed off on everyone. She says... While she and other ESA students go on cool field trips to the local lake or to dump, the general population at Oakland High never learns where trash really goes.
4: Like, they don't know exactly what happens to that piece of gum. It goes into the water. It goes into, the, um, goes into our lake, into our ocean. In ESA, you learn about all that stuff. We see what happens. We see the results.
10: Laniqua Howard is also in ESA. She has her own theory to explain our trash complex.
4: In some
3: matters, it might be psychological. Students don't throw away their trash because they might feel like, oh, I don't like this school, or teachers, they give me bad grades, so I don't care about this school, and I'm just going to trash it. But that's not fair to other people who do actually like this campus.
10: But of course, I can't just talk about litterers. I need to talk to one, too, like senior Lindsay Castillo.
7: I want my neighborhood to look better than my school, usually because that's where I live. You know, it's like my sanctuary.
10: But Lindsay says school is just a place she has to get through, so she accidentally drops her wrappers and cans on the floor at Oakland High all the time.
3: The school does bring the worst out of you, and that's probably why it, it can encourage littering, mostly because it's a stressful environment.
10: Sure, it's stressful, but there are so many wonderful things about our school. Like, in my English class, there are students who speak seven different languages, and we have some kick-ass homecoming rallies. But I get embarrassed bringing people to my school, because I'm deathly afraid they won't see past the trash, and they'll think of it as just another low-ranked Oakland public school. For Living on Earth, I'm Ricky Zhang.
0: Our story on recycling at Oakland High School was produced by Youth Radio's Environmental Desk in association with National Geographic. Next week on Living on Earth, Mexico City has a water problem. During the rainy season, water runs off its streets and can't be captured for drinking. But a new type of pavement lets the water reach the wells.
3: Water goes through it, and I felt like my soul was going everywhere around the world.
0: I told him, Jaime, you just discovered something that everyone around the world is looking for. A concrete solution to big city water problems next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a signature sound from the city by the bay. Living honors Eileen Balinski recorded the action at the Powell Street cable car turnaround station. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our program from San Francisco was produced by Eileen Bolinsky. Our crew includes Jennifer Chu and Steve Gregory, with help from Jenny Cecil Moore and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Max Thielander and Sarah Williams. Our technical director is Paul Wabreck. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. From San Francisco, I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Oak Foundation for coverage of marine issues.
4: This is NPR, National Public Radio.